Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 16. On today's show, we chat with Isidore Forrest. Isidore has been a researcher, student, and devotee of ISIS for over 20 years. She's a priestess of the International Fellowship of ISIS, a hermetic adept, and a founder of the Hermetic Fellowship, a religious nonprofit devoted to education in the Western esoteric tradition. She is the author of Isis Magic, Cultivating a Relationship with the Goddess of 10,000 Names, and of Offering to Isis, Knowing the Goddess Through Her Sacred Symbols. Isidore also runs the Isis-themed blog Isiopolis, which is full of many thought-provoking articles, and we highly recommend you checking that out as well. Before we get to the interview, we'd just like to say thank you to our patrons who help make the show possible. If you appreciate the work we're doing here, consider becoming a patron over on Patreon. You can also help us out by giving us a review on iTunes, and we would appreciate that. Now that I got that out of the way, let's move on to the episode. Enjoy. Okay, it is our pleasure and our honor to have Isadora Forrest on the show today. Um, welcome to the show, Isadora. Thanks. Yeah, so glad to have you. Oh, glad to be here, and uh, hi to all the magicians and fools out there. That's probably the place where we all need to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are planning to talk to you about all sorts of things Um Egyptian religion, spirituality, specifically ISIS, because that's your that's your speciality. Um, yep. So let's just let's just start with an introduction. You can maybe talk a little bit about um, yourself, and then we'll get right into ISIS. Well, that that's probably the hardest question of all. <laughs> is um, I'm usually like, oh, talk about myself. No, um, like one of the I recently did a, an article for for a book where it was an anthology of experiences with various spiritual beings. And it was the most revealing thing I'd ever written. And I was so uncomfortable the whole time. So I'm going to go with like an original question that uh, you guys passed on earlier. It's kind of like, uh, how did, how did I come to ISIS? Sure. That story is mm, a little magical, but we'll see. So for me, it was through feminism. I came to the idea of a goddess through feminism. And it's like, why should the divine be masculine only? And the answer is, it's not and never has been. Pe- people of all, regardless of gender, agender, gender queerness, whatever, can find themselves reflected in and can reflect the divine. But at the time, for me, it was all about the goddess. This was a brand new idea at the time. So that, of course, brought me to neo-paganism. I found ceremonial magic along the way. I worked with a lot of a uh, lot of great groups, some very structured sort of things, and some that were much less structured. And eventually, I just felt like I needed to focus my work a little bit more by finding a particular deity that would be kind of the doorway for me. And uh, I'd always been 
interested in Egyptian things. And at the time, I was young and rebellious, and I didn't want Isis at all, because if anybody thinks of the goddess, they always think of Isis. It's kind of like, oh, no, everybody does Isis. I can't do that. Right. I'm too cool for that. <laughs> but she just kept coming back. Have you ever had a deity get in your face? She got in my face. Every time I turn around, there she would be. And eventually I just said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I worked up a devotional ritual. And uh, it was it's the ritual that actually eventually became the ritual of becoming a priestess of Isis in my book. First time I did the ritual, I was totally faint. I couldn't finish. I had to sit on the floor because the energy was so much. And the message I got from her was, Obviously, you are not ready. You need to go back and you need to study and come talk to me in a year. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what I did. Is went back, studied, then eventually reworked that ritual, and uh, I have been in her service ever since. That's and, awesome. Uh, let's see. <laughs> kind of the final final touch on that story is a little bit magical. Is the very next day. Uh, there was a woman that I knew a little bit and I didn't really particularly like her, but she came over and she brought me a gift of a pair of earrings with Isis on them. And she'd had a dream in which Isis told her to come and give me those earrings. Wow. So it was a, it was both a wonderful confirmation and a humbling experience because it was obviously, well, you don't think what you think you, you don't know what you think you know about people you need to, more open right so. no, that's very powerful and I, I really love how she told you that no you were not ready because I don't think mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people would be open to that or even think that that was an option I, I think a lot of people just think that they are they're always ready to, to go forward and I don't think a lot of people would want to wait a year so I think that's really really cool yeah it, <laughs> I used to do that a lot in involved in getting in ritual where there was actual real magical energy i didn't my body couldn't handle it and i would faint a lot of the times in huh. fact uh, in some of the hermetic work that i'd done is adam knew that he would have to come and get behind me at certain parts in in various rituals because i would tend to go down <laughs> <laughs> wow so you got and into I've it i've since learned to handle it better <laughs> <laughs> very cool um mm -hmm. So as far as ISIS goes, it, it, your process of, of kind of being introduced to her and formulating this, um, uh, I don't know how to even put it. You, what, the kind of the path in the, the book, the, you mean? Exactly, the path to become a, becoming a priestess. So how long did that whole process take? That was about a year? Oh, my gosh, no, much okay. longer. <laughs> okay. I would say about 10, <laughs> about oh, wow. 10 years. Okay, that's good. As for I mean, I, as you say, I, I have few books out, so it's this is not the way I make my living. Right. I have to have an actual job where they will pay me things. <laughs> you never, you know, as as an occult author, you probably know the money is not there. <laughs> so it's for love that you're doing it, and for for sharing information. So that that whole thing developed. Through my own work, 
I found things that worked for me. And what was important for me as far as that was to get as much information as I possibly could about the history of the worship of Isis and how she was conceived by her devotees throughout the ages, but then to provide a way that, that we can follow that path too and, and find our own path. Because okay. I think once you get the basics down, magicians must experiment. They're going to experiment. They should experiment. <laughs> right. And I want to I follow that path today in the interview where we maybe start with a little bit of the historical and then move into the more practical, if that's cool with you. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah, def- definitely. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, uh, uh, you know, people speak about the mysteries of ISIS. And one of the things that originally years ago um i i came across your book around the same time i met you and your wonderful husband and um it struck me immediately because i was like wow yes finally this is something that isn't just like uh wicca with isis thrown in yeah <laughs> this is actually based on you know authentic uh egyptian you know uh egyptian and alexandrian it looks like um you know uh, magical practice and it just blew my mind and uh, it, it was clear to me that you had really done your homework and so I wanted to ask you what exactly are the mysteries of Isis or what what were the mysteries of, I guess are is better because I think they still exist today yeah I mean a lot of times when we're talking about mysteries today we use it kind of broadly so any I don't know, interesting, deep, spiritually profound experience that we might have with a deity, we would say that that is part of the mysteries. But in ancient times, they meant something super specific about mysteries. They were rituals, and the secrets were secrets of ritual. We don't have any mention of mysteries of Isis per se until about the 2nd century BCE. There's an eratology, you you guys are probably familiar with the term, and I don't know if all your uh, listeners are. Is eratology is speaking of virtues, and it's it's those kind of speeches where the deity goes through and says, you know, I am Isis, the queen of the heavens, and I rule the seas, and all this sort of thing. It's speaking about the virtues of the of the deity. And there's one in Greek that's from the Greek city of Maronea that mentions that. Isis and Thos uh, devised writing, some for the regular people and some for the initiated. And that's the first kind of hint that we have about mysteries of Isis. So they usually, scholars will date them from that time since, since that's the only date that we have. And let's see, the ones that everybody is so, is familiar with are like the Roman period mysteries and Apuleius written by Lucius Apuleius in about, oh, he's second century CE. So about 400 years from that first mention, we have, we have the account of Lucius. Now it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's in a book called Metamorphoses, Changes, Transformations. It's a fictional book. And the whole, the whole story is like 11 or 12 chapters and Isis is not till the very last one. It's the story of uh, a, a guy who is foolishly, <laughs> to, uh, 
to get your podcast title in there, who is <laughs> foolishly messing around with magic. He's he and he has turned into an ass. And the story, most of the story, is his adventures as an ass. So finally, he gets he's so tired of it. He's tired of the whole everything that's happened to him, and he comes to the sea and he prays and he prays to Isis. And he is talking to the moon goddess at that time. And this is very syncretistic. So he's talking to all the names of the goddess he knows. And he's saying, whether you were called this or that or the other thing, please come and help me. And so who answers is Isis. She arises from the sea and gives a, a speech and says, they, these people know me by this name and that name and the other name. But my true name is Queen Isis. And so after this miraculous experience, he decides that he wants to be initiated into her mysteries. And the rest of the book kind of tells how that happens. And he doesn't tell the mysteries per se, but there's a passage that has become very, very famous. And I would like to recite it to you. I've, I've used it in many rituals, so I can, in fact, recite it. And Steve, Please, please do. See if this doesn't sound like maybe some ritual you've been through. Hear then, but believe, for what I say is true. I have approached the confines of death, and treading the threshold of Prosephina, I was conveyed through all the elements and returned. I have seen the sun flashing with brilliant white light at midnight. I have drawn very near to the gods above and the gods below, and I have addressed them face to face. Behold, I have told you things about which, though you have heard them, it is inevitable that you must yet be ignorant. And that passage right there has served as a blueprint for so many rituals down through the ages from that time that, I mean, you can still see it in Wiccan ceremonies today. You can see it in ceremonial magic. You can see it in masonry. It's there. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. I was, I was actually going to ask you if you pulled from Apuleius for your own practice, but it sounds like yes. That passage, for sure, yeah. and you'll you'll see that translated a couple different ways. This this particular translation is the one that Adam did, and I may be a little prejudiced, but I think it's the best. So anyway, that's 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 all Lucius tells us about kind of the core core of the mysteries. And I recommend like strongly to anybody interested in things that we discuss in the podcast, interested in ISIS, interested in just that era in general, the golden ass is an amazing, it's just an amazing book. It's really cool. And it really gets you a taste of what it was like uh, to pass through the mysteries, to be a magician at that time. And even the interactions between different kinds of practitioners of magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is a fictionalized account and scholars are certainly on both sides of the debate. Is it, you know, is it totally fiction? Does, did Apuleius know anything about this? I think most of them kind of tend toward, yeah, he did know something about it. And he's probably writing a fictionalized account, but there's something real beneath it. And certainly there's a lot of people that think, yeah, he was, in fact, an Isiac initiate. And we know he was a magician because later on we have his famous apology for magic 
he's somebody took him to court and as you know you're a magician <laughs> and he had to defend himself and because he was a lawyer which we learn in the story of isis and the ass is he defended himself and he his quote is something like Hear this, O oh you who rashly uh, slander magic. It is an art uh, uh, appropriate to the immortal gods. On and on. One of my favorite magic quotes. Do not slander magic. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, that's a very Egyptian perspective on it, too, because, you know, in, in, in Rome, yes, at least to some degree, it was against the law in some respects, but to the Egyptians, it was, magic was holy, and it was a gift from the gods. And wouldn't you say, I mean, wouldn't you say that Isis kind of embodies that the the magical Egyptian practitioner, the the Egyptian practitioner of magic? Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, uh, that's that's the core part that speaks to my heart about her. She is great of magic to me. She's she is she is magic. She controls magic. She wields magic. And I mean, on the kind of Thinking back to the scholarly debate thing where we're talking about uh, Apuleius, there's also debate about where did uh, where did some of those mysteries come from? And certainly some of the ancient Greeks said, well, we got them from the Egyptians. Now, there's huge debate about how much influence the uh, Oriental cultures had on on Greek culture and I think more and more people are coming to the conclusion that it was well a lot but there were plenty of Greeks who were saying yeah yeah we got them from the Egyptians and you have a you have a you have a cool article on your your um, website um, speaking to this I I think it's your most recent article and yeah I put that up there and think uh, thinking about our talk uh, today definitely there, there's lots of influence. You had mentioned something in something in there that I I didn't know about, um, where Diodorus the Sicilian was had mentioned that it was possible that there was an Egyptian at the center of the Aleutian mysteries, which I found was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, there's there's a there's definitely one of them that claims that. Let me see which one it was. Uh, yeah, that Erechtheus, the king of Athens was the one who brought the Eleusinian rites from Egypt because Egypt had given them some grain during during a famine that, that they were having. Mm. And I think, I mean, the, it seems like a lot of the ancient Greeks were pretty comfortable with saying, yeah, we got it from Egypt. It's like, those, yeah. those guys know about that stuff. Exactly. Yeah, and it I think that some, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's, it's just interesting the way you laid it out in your, in your article. Um, where things were coming from Egypt to Greece, they were kind of becoming Greek myths, and then they were returning to Egypt late, much later, and then shifting back to being Egyptian, but with a little bit of the Greek influence in there as well, and some of the Greek changes. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating. Yeah, and to me, that's a re- it's it's such an exciting cultural myth. I know there are a lot of issues with you know cultural appropriation that we are concerned about these days and rightly so, but there certainly was a lot of mixing in that Mediterranean cauldron. <laughs> and, and to me, it, it produces a, a really wonderful mix and I, I enjoy it. <laughs> I think one of the, one of the things that um, may have inspired all that 
Greek interpretation of of Egyptian myth is is what the Egyptians did with death. Uh, the, some of the same things that the Greek philosophers said about initiation, where you would you know go through wanderings in darkness and have to pass through trials, and there were strange words and strange sounds. Well, these are exactly the same things that were expected to happen to the Egyptian after death in the journey through the underworld. And that powerful concept seems to have grown and bloomed and been taken kind of above ground, if you will, in, in the mysteries. So that makes a lot of sense to me, the, that process of death and rebirth. And it kind of leads me into um, another question I, I wanted to ask you is, so, you know, when you, when you read um, classical, um, you know, historiographers and, um, you know, you know, people talking about the mysteries and different things. There's this kind of euhemeristic tendency that the, that some that some of these classical writers have when they're speaking about deities, where they basically say, "Oh well, you know, Venus Venus was actually you know or ancient Roman." You, you know what I mean? And they did that with Isis and Osiris. Right. And of course, it's easy to just discount that and say, "Well, that's sort of a rationalistic inclination," but if we look in the Hermetica, there's a statement which I think was taken from Heraclitus originally uh, that basically says human beings are mortal gods and gods are immortal humans. Um, so that kind of leads me into the idea of Isis being the paradigm for, for sort of theosis or integration with the Godhead because of the myth of Isis learning the name of Ray and sort of becoming going from going from a more individualized soul into a cosmic soul incorporating everything. And I was wondering if you would be willing to talk on that and, and also willing to answer the question as to whether you think that is a, um, also a paradigm for devotees of Isis. Well, for me, that the question of her as, as a, a model for theosis or becoming becoming divinized, that answer would be no, because she has always been a full-on goddess. So she doesn't become anything she wasn't already, as far as I'm concerned. But rather, I would say that her her devotees can work with her toward their own theosis under her wings, with her as their guide and their teacher. And certainly in the in the Egyptian mysteries, in the broad sense of the term, that was the point: is you were you were trying to become a god. That's what your journey through the underworld, should it be a successful passage, would eventually result in. You would be joined to your star as a star among stars, as a god among gods in the other world. And I actually have kind of a different take on the Isis and Ray story, which. I've written up I've written up in Isis Magic but I've also put it on put it on the blog cuz I think it's it's a really interesting story it's a really important story and I don't know if we want to get into that whole thing here but I will tell you what to search on Isiopolis is because WordPress search sucks <laughs> it kind of searches only the, the titles 
So the disturbing story is what you want to search. Okay, cool. And you'll find the story there. Okay, nice. We will definitely look into that. Um, and we'll <laughs> post it on our on the Magician and the Fool for people to maybe link directly to to read. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's tons of stuff on the on the blog over the years. I've started kind of reposting some of the things because of just the way blogs work. Is unless you're doing a Google Google search through it, you don't yeah. find anything. So I'm trying to bring some of the stuff back up. Plus, I'm still working on other projects, and writing a blog is a lot of time. Yeah. I gotta tell you. Yeah, and you've stayed consistent, which is good. A lot of people drop off the map. Um, so you, you touched on, um, a little bit, you touched on Thoth, I, I think, and Hermes. Um, mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about maybe your thoughts on the relationship? I know there's lots of different myths, um, different stories, but maybe the relationship between Isis and Thoth, Isis and Hermes, how the similarities and how they're connected, especially with magic, obviously. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's that's the key one, is that they are both the great Egyptian deities of magic. They are, they are the great Egyptian magicians. And I think it's really interesting that both of them, and probably because of their connection with magic, are the ones that have kind of come down into the Western esoteric tradition. Uh, he came as Hermes Trismegistos, the quintessential teacher, and, and she came as the quintessential goddess but they've always kind of had a close relationship. Um, in some of the traditions, Isis is the daughter of Geb and Nuit, but sometimes later on, she's thought to be the daughter of Hermes. Uh, let's see. There's an inscription. It's probably probably in the papyri. I'm not sure, uh, but calls her the vizier and daughter of Thoth. Yes, yes. And and if you look at the myth of the myths of Isis, I mean, Thoth is definitely very engaged and very involved in the whole process. I mean, he clearly cares a lot. And it always seemed to me he cares almost to the degree of a relative. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that's why they it was easy to kind of see them as some kind of some kind of family members together. And I mean, he, like you mentioned, he he does come to her aid in a number of a number of the stories, one where she cries out to stop the boat of the sun, and he comes down and heals Horus for her. And that's all. That's a very interesting myth too. And I think it has. It this one has a a human lesson. Because I mean, we're talking about euhemerism that we're people bringing bringing the gods down into humanity. And I mean, we've always done that with our myths. Why do we tell stories of the gods? Because they'll have a meaning for us. They will teach us something. They will, they will show us something. And the one where Isis does not have the power to, to heal her son Horus after a scorpion sting, then she has to call on both. He comes down, takes care of it. I think the lesson there is, for magicians particularly, is, is sometimes we are so close to the problem that even though we may be great magicians ourselves, we sometimes need help when we're too emotionally involved. And I, that may be this, this case there is she was so distressed that all the magic flew out of her head and she needed help. And so those came down and helped. 
Well, that really hits home for me uh, for personal reasons. Um, I've found that to be very true. I think you're, I think you're onto something there. And uh, I think Thoth does that too. I think maybe because of his ability to remain balanced and impartial, um, he's especially, and I've just, I mean, in my experience, he's just extremely compassionate and it's an overlooked side of him. Um, yes, I, I totally agree. There's, there's, um, you've probably seen this book. It's, uh, it's an older book and it's called Thoth and Hathor. And oh, yeah. I think it's a bleaker. Is it bleaker? Yeah. Uh, anyway, they, they collected a bunch of the, uh, probably inscriptions from scribes, but talking about a relationship with Thoth. And some of those were so heartwarming is, is that you're so close to me. And, uh, I think we find that in the papyri as well, where I, I think this is, it's Hermes come to me like children come to the wombs of women in that, what a soft, beautiful, magical feeling that is. It's profound. It's from the spell of Astrosuchos. Yeah. And, and oh, good. Yeah. It's, it's really, and that's kind of interesting because Astra meaning, you know, I'm probably referring to star and Sukos meaning psyche. And it's a love spell, but it calls Thoth into the coils. Come to me like um, children come into the coils of women's wombs. And then you're talking about the star coming into the psyche. So it's kind of a neat, multi-layered thing there that, again, relates back to Isis, in my opinion. Yep. I love the papyri. There's so many wonderful things in there. Uh, I've been through the whole thing so many times, and I would just write down, like, phrases that I thought were wonderful and sometimes they get used in ritual and sometimes they just get meditated on <laughs> isn't there isn't there an egyptian myth where i i can't remember where i saw it but I, I thought there was a myth that also talks about that thoth secretly kind of got together with newt and some of the god some of the uh chaos well you know sometimes they were called chaos gods because they were the youngest you know osiris isis uh, mm -hmm. Naphthys, her and her brother, um, and sometimes Anubis, but they some. I think according to that myth, like there was a perspective that at least some of them are actually those children, and hmm. illicitly. Oh, oh! I wonder. I wonder if you're thinking about the the chaos gods, kind of like the primordial ones. There is one of the, those myths where there's there's the uh, four pairs like darkness and silence and that. And then Thoth is kind of the head of, of that well, Ogdoad and he makes it the Ennead. Yeah. And I think that, and I think that, that the two, as far as I understand theologically, those, the two are related because the, um, you know, the birth, the birth of the, you know, the Osiris and his uh, brother and sisters coincided with, the rising of Sirius and the flooding of the Nile and the flooding of the Nile was also associated with the Ogdoad and the Zeptepi. So I think it was all like different layers of the same cosmogonic process, but I could be wrong. Yeah. That's one of the things I really like about Egyptian myth is there's, there's so many different kinds of myths that tell us how the universe came into being and they're all true. Yeah. <laughs> and I also like I also like the fluidity of Egyptian myth is 
you know, this god is the Ba of that one, and this one can combine with that one to be a double-named god. And uh, I, I really like that, and it speaks to my heart about the way uh, spiritual things, non-physical things work. They're more fluid mm-hmm. rather than, than really stayed. Right. I have to admit, like, the the Isis Bastet um, connection was a little confusing to me uh, when I first encountered it. Because mm-hmm. they seem yeah, discreetly different, you know what I mean? Yeah, they they do, but I think so many of them can can combine, and we don't we don't have all the stories that explain those things. Yeah. Although there's certainly plenty of Isis Sekhmet, and I guess you can kind of do it as Bastet is maybe a stepped down Sekhmet. Huh. That's interesting. Piwakit is giving me an eyeball right here. It's like, <laughs> don't talk about her. <laughs> She's mine. <laughs> so speaking of that, Isadora, from your research and practice, when did Isis become kind of the all-encompassing amalgamation? When did that start where she, and you see it in the Oxyrhynchus papyrus, you see it in uh, Epileus where she is kind of a combination of all, like the, the mother goddess. She is Aphrodite. She is Athena. She is... Hecate, she is all the goddesses. When when do you see that starting? Well, I mean the 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 height of that was like second century CE, and it probably it probably started as, when she started to come into the Greek world. And I think the earliest for sure reference that we have is an inscription in the Pyrrhus where uh, people were applying for a permit, basically to. Uh, to make a sanctuary for some other deity, but they were referencing, well, you gave one to the Egyptian gods, so you need to give one to me. And that is like 333 BCE, I think, is when they found that. So from that time until that 500-year period till about the 2nd century CE, that was when that was happening. Is I always feel like it's kind of a way that people translated her to into their own terms is like, well, there's this wonderful goddess that I know from Egypt and she's kind of like Aphrodite and she's kind of like Demeter and she's kind of like this, you know, so you get my goddess, right? Right. Right. Is that the view you take um, when working with her or are you more specific or do you go all of the above? I, well, I I actually do, I I think I'm more specific. I think I'm more specific. Because I really like her magical aspects, and I really like her Egyptian aspects. But I do appreciate some of the connections in the broadest sense. Like, I know one of the, she can fit anywhere on the tree of life, and everywhere on the tree of life, and she should fit there. That's the broadness of of her, any of the great gods. For me, they are, anytime that you are doing a devotion where you really have a relationship, a true relationship with the deity, that deity will open the door to the enormity of themselves for you so that they can fill every spot on the tree of life and beyond that. And that's true of all of them. And that's, that's the mystery in that there's no one true 
deity who's the one true everything. They're all the one true everything. Right. You just find the one that you love. <laughs> right. Yeah. We spoke to Edward Butler a few months ago, and that was kind of what I got from him. Um, all are in all, essentially, is, is kind of the message I got from him. So, yeah, that sounds, that resonates. Yep. Yeah. No, I think uh, his, his work is very interesting on, on that front, and I really, really like it. I like his uh, Henodology uh, website as well. I've got a couple of books of his that I've that's sitting on my desktop that I want to read. <laughs> um, you know, one aspect of Isis that I really find interesting is the oceanic side of her. Like the in, in Isis magic, you talked about uh, Isis Pelagia and mm-hmm. uh, and and also the Nav- Navigium Isidis. Did I say mm-hmm. that right? the the festival and i was wondering if you could speak a little i just think i don't know it's more of an emotional thing but there's something about her association with the sea that really speaks to me mhm yeah i think um i think that association well i mean egyptian deities have always had an association with water because of the nile being so important in the lives of ancient egyptians all up and down the whole length of the country and travel by boat. So instead of like chariots riding through the sky, they rode on boats. So they've all, there's always been a connection with water for them. But I think when uh, Isis started coming out of Egypt into a lot of the port cities around the Mediterranean because of travel, that's where you, that's how they they moved around. I think scholars used to think that that they were it was kind of a um, forced uh, proselytism that the Ptolemies did, but I think the uh, the opinion now is a little bit more like no, it was kind of natural. It was like the sailors and even some of the military people and the traders and the merchants were the ones that brought her into all the port cities. And any time that a deity is associated with a port city, naturally they're going to also be associated with the water that everybody makes their livelihood from. And I think that's kind of where that association got started. And, and referencing back to your, your blog again, um, and I would recommend all of our listeners go and check out your blog. You have some awesome articles on there. Um, you have a fairly recent one where um, ISIS is um, compared to or relates to the rudder of the ship. So, mm-hmm. so can you maybe talk about that a little bit? A lot of the times when you will see little statuettes, and they're mostly Roman, probably mostly Roman, that where she's got all kinds of attributes. She's got her Egyptian headdress of some kind. She's usually got a, a situla or, and a sistrum and often a rudder and sometimes an orb. And that is her controlling fate, is that the rudder that steers us through the, through the waters of fate and she's a goddess who's always been associated with, rather than blind fate, a seeing fate. And she is also always one that can overcome fate. People, particularly at that second century CE time period, there seems to be a lot of concern about uh, the weight of the stars on your birth. That, you know, you're born with a certain birth chart and you have no option to change it. So people were wanting the power of the divine to come in and help them 
overcome some of the issues that they maybe felt were due to their horoscope. And she was one of the deities that you would call on. I'm sure I'm sure you guys are really familiar with the papyri as I am, but there's definitely one where it's uh, Isis come in, shake your black destiny, remove your veil, and move the constellation of the bear. So this person was asking her to uh, either reveal some future fate or to help them out of a current situation that they felt were kind of faded. So he, she was using her rudder to steer them out of their trouble. That's really interesting. It kind of, it kind of seems to connect also the oceanic aspect of her with like the sort of Isis Fortuna or Tike Agathe. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I love that aspect of her as well. There's, um, I like the com- combination of the name. This is an example of combining deities. There's a Isatike, who is a combination of Isis and Taiki, luck. Right, and, and isn't Fortuna uh, or Tike, are, are they portrayed as being blind, whereas Isis, in combination with them, would be, there would be more control involved because she is not portrayed as being right. blind, which is cool. Exactly, exactly. Blind fate and as opposed to a seeing fate. Right, right. Who can, who can maybe steer you? Right, and it speaks to her, her ability with being great in magic as well as that ability to shape reality. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've just read a really interesting article. I forget the author, but it's, you know, in the, in the great um, storehouse of academia.edu. <laughs> Yay, I love academia.edu. Yes. Somebody had a paper that was the search for Isis, uh, the magician. And it was kind of tracing the way in Egyptian texts, being a magician is very positive. It's like, yeah, magician, we like that. It's good. Hey, God. <laughs> but by the time her, her religion started to come outside of Egypt and get into Greece and Rome, where they were a little more, little widgy about uh, whether magic was a good thing or not. They were less comfortable that her, her magic began to be described more as miracles and wonders and blessings rather than magic, because we weren't quite sure we were happy with that word magic. <laughs> that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting distinction there, because you're, you're so right about that. Like, there's this wariness toward magic like we were talking about in the beginning that is definitely clear, but it's, it's almost part of the indigenous Egyptian mindset that it is a positive thing. I mean, I, I think, I, I, I think I read in one, I don't know, some myth where it's, it was actually said that Ray himself gave magic to humankind to help us basically cope with this world. So, yeah, yeah, that's in one of the. I think it's in one of the in, instructions to some pharaoh or another. And yeah, that that's exactly right. Is the gods gave us magic to help us cope with things because they knew we were going to have to cope with things. Imagine if like imagine if like the Isis cults had become the dominant uh, religion of the empire instead of a Christianity. You know, perhaps a positive attitude toward magic would have spread throughout the world. I wonder, I wonder, because it's, I mean, it's, I mean, there's so many, so many variables with something like that, but I always look to modern India to see 
maybe what a polytheistic country, if it had remained so, would be like, is what Egypt would have been like. Because if you really look at some of like the um, the rituals and things in in Hindu temples. They seem very, very Egyptian. It's remarkable. The puja with the bathing of the deity, the sprinkling, the washing, the enrobing is extremely similar to what they would do in an Egyptian yep. temple. It blows my mind. When I first saw that, I was like, wow, you know, I want. This might be what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> and so I adopt, started adopting some of those practices when I realized that there was that corollary there. Um, because it, it, it's clearly it's a methodology and a technology that's effective. Um, I do yep. want to I do want to lead in while we're on the topic of magic to um, something that I think that you is probably close to your heart. Um, you know, because like you know, I, I think Apuleius Apuleius called her the great magicianess, um, and you know, I feel like. She, Isis is especially an example for female practitioners of magic. Like, it, it seems like she's she's an excellent example for women who aspire to be or consider themselves to be magicians like you. Um, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, on that, you know, on that, on her as an example for that, on her as a paradigm of that, because I love the idea of that. Yeah, me too. That, that's... That's well. When I uh, dedicated as a priestess of the Fellowship of Isis, which you know had to be done, they have you choose three three deities to uh, dedicate yourself to or devote yourself to. And mine was Isis, Great of Magic, and then two other aspects of Isis because I I was just doing her at that time. And she has other wonderful epithets. Uh, great of Magic is Weretekau. She's called the Great Sorceress. She's Nebateka, Lady of Magic. She's Iset Hekayet, Isis the Magician. And we have of her saying of herself, I am Isis the Goddess, the possessor of magic, who performs magic, effective of speech, excellent of words, indeed. So I think she's telling us there one way that we can that we can use our magic is uh, very much Egyptian tr tradition is magic of words. But we know from the demotic papyri that there's always some physical thing that happens with it as well. And we, I mean, we still do that in our magic today. Um, so she is, I mean, she is a divine feminine magician power. But I don't think she's only a model for the female magician. In fact, there's a, there's a great story about... It comes about because of a priest who's studied in the underground caverns with Isis for 23 years, and that's how he learned his powerful magic. And it's a, it's a tale told by an ancient writer named Lucan, and his protagonist is a, a Greek guy called Eucrates. And Eucrates says that in his youth, his father had sent him to Egypt to complete his education. So he sailed to Koptos, you know, as you do, with the intention of going to the statue of Memnon for an oracle, you know, as you do. So on the way there, he met a man from Memphis who was supposed to be one of the temple scribes, and he was very, very learned. And his name was Pancrates. 
And he was the one who was supposed to have studied for 23 years living underground in the Egyptian sanctuaries, learning his magic from Isis herself. So he was, he was apparently a very famous teacher. And another of Eucrates' friends said, you know, you need to go study with this guy. And they made arrangements, and, and he did. So Eucrates goes back to the magician's house, the priest's house, and watches him you know, work his magic. And, and he sees him one day speaking particular words over a broom. And suddenly it comes to life, and it, comes, and it does all the tasks that need doing around the house. Eucrates thinks this is pretty cool. So when the magician goes out one day, he, he speaks the same words that he overheard over this broom, and it starts to work, and he says, go fetch water. And the thing begins fetching water. And he goes, yeah, cool, this is working really well. And then he figures out that he didn't learn the word that makes it stop. And it begins fetching water and fetching water, and he <laughs> breaks it, and it turns into multiple things and now you're starting to see eucrates has mouse ears right right i was just going to say isn't this isn't this a mickey mouse cartoon <laughs> exactly that's exactly it's an ancient egyptian tale that disney retold wow <laughs> that's awesome that is awesome wow <laughs> <laughs> yep look at that that's a that's pretty amazing reach it is <laughs> And I think that's one of the things that, that I was wanting to trace with all of Isis magic was there's this important divine force that came out of Egypt or maybe somewhere else earlier even and has never left us is that we find her traces kind of everywhere. And the Fellowship of Isis that I mentioned a few minutes ago has, I don't know, probably 40,000 members all over the world these days with various devotions, but all of them under her name. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's with us and she's with us as a magician. Very good. Yeah. We're, we're moving in this direction. So um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the path, the modern path of ISIS, what that looks like, um, how you lay it out. Um, and you know daily what what daily practice looks like when you're doing devotionals to Isis and working with Isis, maybe some of the tools you use, what the rituals might look like, that kind of stuff mhm mm mhm uh let's see first first, I would want to say that anybody who's just starting out, you don't need stuff in order to have a relationship with with Isis or with any deity for that matter, but we're talking about Isis. All you need is yourself and your desire to do it and someplace quiet you can go to to concentrate. You know, that being said, a lot of people like to have tokens. So maybe one of the easiest things to start out with is to create a small altar. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to give up a room or a closet like I did. <laughs> uh, but if you've got a shelf that you can use, anything, start putting things that speak to you about her um, is there a color that you that just says isis to you and you can certainly find you know historical correspondences for that sort of thing but i also like to leave it open so people can find their own connections because that's you know that's the thing that's really going to speak to you is is what you have made your own connection with uh, one of the, one of the rituals that i personally use like all the time 
is the opening of the ways. That's uh, that one's in my book, and it's it's based on so many of these other. Well, two, it's based on a couple of things. One is is rituals where you open all the four quarters around you, but also adding above and below so that you've got a, a circular working space to be in. But also it's it's based on the idea that in the ancient Egyptian temples, th- some of the main things that they did were open the doors of the shrine each day so that the deity could be bathed, dressed, anointed, made offering to, all that sort of thing. Uh, so I love the opening of the ways as as kind of a a daily practice, if I am so lucky to actually daily practice. <laughs> uh, just recently, I completed a 42-day, everyday um, intensive, I guess I would say, uh, with her, because I've been trying to work on some work on some Egyptian theurgy stuff, and uh, I wanted to just kind of concentrate things. I do not do that every day, even though I am very devoted to her. So if you're starting out, maybe once a week is is probably good good for you. Um, another easy practice that doesn't require any uh, anything other than yourself and your heart is chanting her name. Uh, you can do it in the English way, Isis, that, that so many people are familiar with. You can go Iset as more authentic ancient Egyptian. Uh, one of the things that we're finding out, it's probably, it's new for me because I'm, I'm not a super huge hieroglyphic reader, but I'm finding things out about the language where we're just like in French, where like the final T will drop off in languages or you don't hear it in spoken. Well, we're finding that probably by the middle kingdom and at least by the new kingdom, her name would have been without that final T. So you'd get more like Ise or Ese mm. or AC, which is probably what you were hearing in Alexandria, which I find very beautiful. Ise, Ise, Ise. Yeah. So you could chant that if you want. Let's see, what other good practices? Um, you know, meditation's always good. Although I've had I've had plenty of people that surprise me and say I just can't meditate and I can't visualize. So it's like, hmm. Well, the way I learned to do it <laughs> was from the Silva mind control method, which had you start visualizing an apple until you could really get the taste of it. And you know, I, that's still a pretty good method. Start out with something small that you're familiar with, and work on it until you can see things or at least perceive them in some way. It doesn't have to be visual. It could be auditory. It could be just kind of feeling sense. I think the key is to stick with it. I mean, a lot of people with meditation, they get frustrated pretty quickly, and then they just say, oh, I can't do it. It's not for me. You might have to actually work and put in some time. Yeah. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Yeah, you do. (laughs) Yep. But I would say, like, you know, there is that percentage of people who are kind of visualizationally challenged, too. And at least in my experience, um, which is pretty limited, um, but in my experience, if you come to the deity with purity of heart, sincerity and humility, and you're able to concentrate and focus, um, even if you can't necessarily see with your mind yet, uh, the deity usually is completely yeah. able to hear you. 
it almost seems as though the sincerity and the purity of your purpose is what um, makes you audible mm -hmm. to the gods. But I don't know. What, yeah, yeah. I, that's my understanding. It's just that, that, and one of the things that I find really useful, and it's kind of, maybe it's weird, I don't know, is desire. And, and you can allow yourself to just really have, and I'm even almost tinged, tinged with a sexual desire is, if you felt sexual desire, then you can translate that to a spiritual desire. And it sometimes helps people understand what that longing feeling is like that you, you want to kind of bring up from your heart and your being and, and offer to the gods. <laughs> well, that's kind of like the platonic eros then mm -hmm. that, that joins the cosmos together. Um, and maybe it was that self same eros that, um, is what was why her love for her husband was so strong. She was able to resurrect him. So, um, in terms of, so I was looking at the, I was revisiting the uh, letter, the the text I, Isis the prophetess to her son Horus, and mm -hmm. um, you know that that may have been written by Zosimos of Panopolis, and we were just talking about him on an earlier show actually, and. Um, you know, it seems that there really may have been a direct connection between the mysteries of Isis and o Osiris and, and uh, alchemy. Um, do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I mean, there there are definitely connections with uh, with alchemy, and that's that. I think that's one of the main ways that kind of the Isis Osiris story enters into the Western esoteric tradition, because. Just the story itself is is solve et coagula. Is Osiris is dissolved into many parts, and then it takes an alchemist, Isis the alchemist, to come back and and put him put him back together. Let's see. Uh, yeah, the one that the that you mentioned, Isis the prophetess to her son. There is an another early text called the True Book of Sophie the Egyptian and the God of the Hebrews, Lord of Powers Sabaoth long enough name <laughs> oh i don't know about this one but i'm on it now <laughs> <laughs> and there, it mentions a particular alchemical method called the tincture of isis so i don't know you know why in a hebrew book is the tincture of isis mentioned don't know the Isis, the prophetess to her son, that's, that's a really interesting story. And it's very much kind of the, the Isis and Ray story where, um, let's see, shall we tell that story? Yeah, let's tell that story. Is that, is the okay. Cor, uh, Corey Cosmos, is that what we're talking about? Or is that? No, this is the story from uh, Isis, the prophetess to her son, Horos. Okay. And our, yeah. I think our, copy of it comes from like 11th century CE and let's see Horus is setting out to battle Typhon as he does and Isis goes to the city of Hormanuthi which is the place of Horus they think maybe Edfu quote where the sacred art of Egypt is practiced in secret she stares stays there a while but as she's leaving an angel catches sight of her and of course wants to have sex with her <laughs> and canny isis says no 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 not until you tell me the secret of preparation of gold and silver 
well, highly disappointed. The angel says, oh, I can't reveal that information. It's too great a mystery, but there's a higher angel. His name is Omniel. He'll come and the next day and he'll be able to answer your question. So the next day, Omniel comes and he shows Isis a certain sign that he has on his head. We don't know what the certain sign was, as well as a vase coated with pitch and filled with transparent water that he was holding in his hands. But even he wouldn't give her the secret. Uh, let's see. But apparently, Omniel, first prophet and angel among them, is taken with lust for the goddess. And the two go back and forth on the topic, negotiating for a couple of days until Omniel can't stand it anymore. He agrees to reveal the alchemical secrets to Isis. So he has her swear a mighty oath by fire and water and light and darkness, by fire, water, air and earth and Greek and Egyptian deities up and down one way or another. So she swears, she promises, and she says that she will not reveal the secrets to anyone but Horus. However, we have in this text the secret. Here it is. So go then, my child, to a certain laborer named Ahab, and ask him what he has sown and what he has harvested. And you will learn from him that the man who sows the wheat also harvests wheat, and the man who sows barley also harvests barley. For a nature rejoices another nature, and a nature conquers another nature. So that's the mystery. So I think it's kind of like uh, you got to have money to make money. <laughs> is kind of the is what they're saying here. And in fact, that was the tincture of Isis because it was a way of alloying a tiny amount of gold with another amount of a lesser metal in order to make something that looked like gold. And there are plenty of plenty of examples of making it look like gold is is actually making the transformation into gold. So you right. knew that there were there were alchem traveling alchemists out there who were maybe doing this trick for money. It's kind of interesting too because in this you were just talking about how there's this uh Hebrew text that seems to be mixing, you know, Judaic and yeah. Egyptian themes. I mean, you have this, and then in this one, you kind of see that too, because there's an angel, yep, which then encounters her. So it's like, okay, well, these are angels. So it, to me, it, it's kind of interesting because these texts also illustrate the worldview of that time, which seems to be really. It seems to have integrated multiple perspectives into one sort of bigger, big picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like drawing on everything it's like is that effective okay bring it in bring it on <laughs> yeah and you, yeah you, it's really you obviously see that in the greek magical papyri where you've got a lot of hebrew you've got a lot of uh greek stuff and you've got a lot of traditional egyptian stuff do you have any thoughts on maybe how isis is portrayed in in the pgm well I, as as you may guess i've been through every <laughs> every line of at least sure. the translation to to pull out all the all the isis uh bits and pieces. You certainly find her a lot in, in erotic spells and particularly on, based on the love that she had for Osiris. Cause like as, as Isis loved him, you come love me. So we, we do see that a lot. Uh, there, I think there's a divination one. There is some healing. And I think there's a, there's an interesting healing one that has Anubis in it too. Cause it's like the bite of a dog or something, but yeah. I don't have all of them on the tip of my tongue right now, but sure. it's it's mostly in those areas, which are 
pretty traditional other than a lot of the erotic magic, but people had, that was, that was one of the things on their minds. <laughs> make, Obviously, make him love me. <laughs> make her love me. Right. And that we was... still do that. <laughs> right. Well, and it does seem that there was sort of a relationship between um, Isis and Aphrodite in the same way that there seems to have been a relationship between Osiris and, say, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, it was, it was, it's a really interesting, I love that there was all that syncretism going on, frankly. I know people sometimes get frustrated with it, and scholars sometimes get frustrated with it. Because it's it's not clear, it's not pure, and right. for me, that's okay. <laughs> I'm I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to be okay with that if you're going to be working in this world because you mm. can't escape it. <laughs> yep, you'll drive yourself nuts trying to find the most pure stream possible, and people try. They do. They do indeed. <laughs> So we had a pretty long list of things to talk about, and I actually think we touched on everything, which is yeah. amazing. <laughs> there, there's maybe one more, one last thing, if you have the time that I did want to talk. Sure. But I did want to talk, because it's just so fundamental, we did want to talk about just your perceptions of uh, the whole, her relationship with Osiris, and even your own insights on that and 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 has that has that has that sort of like inspired you and your love for your husband you know Mm -hmm. well it it is really interesting i mean you would think it would be the most normal thing like when i was saying at the beginning that i felt like i needed i I wanted a goddess to kind of focus my my work with and then another time it's like okay I've, i've worked with goddess my feminist soul is satisfied now now i need a god and of course, I looked at Osiris first, and he was very patient, and we worked together so much, and we tried, and we tried, and we tried, and that just wasn't the relationship for me on that side. However, thanks to syncretism, I could make a, a nice little move lateral over to the god who is my god, Dionysos. He was certainly assimilated with Osiris in this late period, and he is the one who came came to me as my as my god. And luckily, he is also Adam's god. And so we uh, dance under the grapevine in our back yeah, backyard together, and are very happy doing that. And you you have a pretty awesome looking temple or a shrine in your backyard to Isis. I just I just found that this morning on your website. Oh yes, yeah. That uh, that is now nine years old. It was it was wow. originally built for a festival, a Sunfest festival that we did in 2010. Mad people built a temple <laughs> because they wanted a temple, and then at the end of the festival, they were like, "We can't just tear that down. We're bringing it to your house." And both Adam oh, and wow. I were like, uh, uh, "We're not quite sure we need a temple in our backyard." <laughs> but it turned out that we did. <laughs> and it's uh, it's been there ever since. It's doing pretty well for a nine-year-old structure that was never meant to be permanent. But I, I tend it every year, you know, repaint it and plaster what needs to be done to, as kind of my votive work for the temple. And we'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> All right. Well, um, like 
uh, Janice mentioned, we don't want to take up too much of your time. It's a beautiful Saturday, um, sunny in Portland. So I'm sure you need to do some yard work. Um, yep. So let's talk about, uh, do you want to maybe talk about your, your blog and maybe the Hermetic Fellowship a little bit and anything else you'd like to talk about? Okay. As far as your work, uh, your books. Let's see. I'll mention uh, both of my books. Isis Magic is still in uh, print, and you can get it from Abbey Agnes House Publishers. It's It will show up on Amazon, but if you pay the $185 <laughs> for that edition, you're a crazy person because <laughs> you, can, you can get it for $29.95, the original price. And what's the uh, publisher Abbey, again? Abbey Agnes. Abbey Agnes House, like the Rosicrucian Mountain of Initiation. Okay. And let's see. The other one is called Offering to Isis. It is not in print anymore, but I just I looked at it, and you can sometimes get it used. I think even Amazon has a few used copies at non-insane prices. That's that's a book that actually, in my opinion, is uh, it's kind of got the short end of the stick. Is when it was first getting published, I had all these different publicists, and nobody really did the did the work. But what it is is a series of 72 symbols associated with the goddess Isis, and I tell a little bit of how each one is associated with her, and then there is an, a, a vocal offering that you can make for each one. And the way I did those was these are these are more poetic sorts of offerings, and I do kind of, it's not really automatic writing, but I'll do, place my fingers on the keyboard, go into kind of a half trance and just start asking about the thing that I'm asking about and typing it down and we'll worry about fixing the commas and punctuation later on. But so there's a lot of those in here too. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of really good information about symbols associated with her. So I do recommend that one if you can not pay ridiculous amounts of money for it. Uh, Isis Magic is, like I said, available. And there is a lot of stuff. If you cannot afford a new book at this time, please go to isiopolis.com and look at everything there. Just there's, I just recently changed the theme, so it's a little more visually interesting. And you can actually look at it on your phone, as I know you're doing, um, rather than the old one, which you really couldn't read on your phone. It was terrible. And you can, if you want to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me uh, through the blog. Okay. And what about the Hermetic Fellowship? Yeah, the Hermetic Fellowship is something that uh, Adam and I have been doing ever since we've been in Portland, which has been how many years? 30. 30. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, it's the third Thursday of every month. It is It is only local. It is not uh, any larger than that. Uh, right now, we and what we do is we'll take a topic and we'll various members of the group will present information based around that topic. And right now we are doing theurgy. So we've been uh, learning about iamblichus and uh, theurgic ritual and yep, Chaldean oracles, Hecate, Apollon. Yeah, this. This coming uh, yeah, this coming Thursday is Apollon Ulios, the dark Apollon. So he should be interesting. Oh man, I need. I wish I was still in Portland. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to try to try to make it out there one of these times. Definitely do. Yeah, yeah, looking forward. So, to and uh, if anybody is in Portland and is interested in coming, um, email me 
at uh, isadora.forest at gmail.com and just give me an introduction. Since, since we meet in our home and you'll need information, we'd like to get a little hello from you. <laughs> Well, Isadora, we've, we are both immensely humbled that you agreed to come on our podcast and grateful to you for your knowledge, your insights, your, your uh, patience with us, and um, just your, your presence. And we are also immensely grateful to the great goddess Isis, uh, Isat. We, with all our hearts and souls, we're, we're grateful to her for you, and we're grateful, we're grateful to her for, for her presence and her existence and her spirit. So we want to thank you, and through you, we want to thank her too. And thank both of you as well. well thank you. It's been awesome. Thank you once again to Isadora. Remember, you can keep up with her on her blog, isiopolis.com. And again, we highly recommend her books, Isis Magic and Offering to Isis. And also remember, if you're in the Portland area and want to participate in the Hermetic Fellowship, just shoot her an email. We hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Isadora is such a wealth of knowledge and an amazing resource. We had a lot of fun and learned a lot. As for us, feel free to follow us on Facebook, give us a like and all that. You can contact us that way as well. And our website is themagicianandthefool.podbean.com. You can find all of our episodes on YouTube as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the rest. All right, well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode.